0: You're listening to Story Power, a podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Asha Hunter is an Air Force veteran with a master's degree in public administration and social work. She's a licensed clinical social worker and resides in North Carolina. She is the author of her memoir, What Children Remember, and host of the podcast, When We Speak. Her private practice, Ascension Growth Center, specializes in the treatment of childhood trauma-related PTSD. She works to eradicate the stigma of mental health by speaking to others at workshops and seminars about trauma and related mental health topics. Driven and well-informed by personal experience, her mission is to spread awareness about complex trauma and to give survivors a safe space to heal. Tasha, welcome to the show today. Hi, Jan,
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you for coming on here. It's been quite a while. I've been a fan. I've been watching you. I've listened to your podcast, and I'm like, I'd love to have Tasha on to just talk about your work, your life, your passions. Um, So, yeah, why don't we start out? That was your official bio. But if you were to tell us about who you are today and how you've come to this place that you are today.
1: Tell us about that. So I don't know if this is allowed, but as you were reading, I said, oh, that bio, it's a bunch of fluff. What I should have just said is I'm a badass trauma survivor and trauma therapist. That's who I am. That's it.
0: I love that.
1: I have this story, Jen, in which I survived some stuff, some really heavy stuff with Experiencing physical abuse and sexual abuse, attempted to take my own life at around the age of 21, survived, which was such a surprise to doctors. And and they said to me, we don't know why you're here. Let's fast forward 20 plus years later, I'm now 41, about to turn 42, and I know exactly why I'm here. Mm. So... So in that bio, it's it's really just that I survived a whole bunch of stuff and I want to bring other people along with me because the thing about trauma is that anytime you go through something really horrific, it's a lonely time because it brings shame. Like, why did I have to go through that? Nobody will understand. And so now, as a therapist, I get to say to people, from a heart-centered perspective, you're not alone. And so that that's why I'm here, and that's what I love to do. What was your journey like in these 20 years? So this is like my third or fourth career or something like that. So I became a social worker in 2017. I opened up my private practice last year. So my private practice has really a singular focus to help adults who are caretakers and helpers, because that's who I am, a caretaker and helper. I'm an Enneagram 2, I mean fully. Very poor boundaries, trying to help everybody for all kinds of reasons that may not have anything to do with them. And so I wanted to help caretakers help. I wanted to treat caretakers and helpers, Enneagram twos, probably, right? Right. Who have also experienced childhood trauma. Right. That's very specific. Those are the people that I help.
0: One of the questions I was actually gonna ask you is like, Had somebody told you 15 years ago, when, you know, in 2021, you're going to have this practice and you're going to be doing this work, would you have believed that, imagined that, or is this something that kind of later on in life
1: came to you? It came so late in life because, Jen, when I tell you I have always been the person, the friend the partner who helped everyone. If you have a problem, call me. If you need anything at all, call me. Mm. Yeah. And I loved everyone else. Loved them hard as I knew how, but I did not have that same love and commitment to myself. Yeah. And I did not believe in my own power to be whatever I wanted to be, to do the things in life that I wanted to, to do, or to even heal. I didn't believe that that trauma, that healing was possible for me. I wanted it, but didn't think that it was possible. So being diagnosed maybe, maybe 10 years ago with PTSD and with depression and with anxiety, I just thought, this is the way it will always be for me. And then just I just kept living, right? I kept living. And and I I just really leaned in because people kept saying, "You're such a good listener. You you're just I feel like you everybody called me their therapist. Everybody came to me for every single thing and wore me down. And my life changed literally the day I went to a therapy appointment and I told my therapy about an experience that I had with a person that's no longer a friend of mine. And I had no boundaries, didn't know what that even meant. Never said no to people, didn't know how. And she said, girl, you do my job, but you do it for free. And I thought, right. I thought, oh, And she said, everyone is dumping their issues on you. And she drew a dumpster on a piece of paper. You don't have to be anyone's dumpster. You can say no. You can say I've had enough. You can say not right now. And I did not know that I could verbalize those words, that that would be okay. So 15 years ago, This is not the Tasha that existed. I had no clue. I was so fearful and so lonely.
0: You talk about like really struggling with depression and PTSD and and just this feeling of overwhelm and not having good boundaries. I think a lot of people can really relate with parts of that, if not all of that. What was it for you that really like
1: broke you free? Sure. So, so there were, there were several things, but here's what comes to mind more than anything else. Because I did not have a, a strong foundation in terms of my family of origin, I would look for love anywhere I could get it. Do you see me? Do you hear me? Am I important? Am I? Do you see any value at all in me? Will you be my friend? <laughs> um, will, will you love me? And I wanted so desperately to be loved. And so what that attracted were people that could see what I offered. They, they could see that I would use up all my time, all my money, all my energy. And they just, they gravitated to me. Because that's the message that I sent is I can be used. So after, after you go through so much of that, and I recognized for years that, that I had this revolving door of friendships, of people coming in and out of my life. My time, my money, my energy, my resources. So I go to therapy in tears. Literally, I owe it to this therapist. She said to me, she said, what would happen if you said no? I said, they would reject me and they would abandon me. I can't say no because they'll be mad at me and they'll never talk to me again. And I I won't, they won't need me. I, they, they won't right. want to be in relationship with me. And she said, because what she had me do is write down every name of every person that had walked out of my life that was no longer my friend, that was currently, and it was a long list of people. And so that's when she really started speaking to that part of me that did all of these things because I'm a two. But it was mostly because I'm just asking people, will you love me? I'll do anything for love. And that was was the point where I said enough is enough. And is it possible for me to find value in myself and instead of looking for love externally, what if I I go on a journey, a very very slow but intentional journey of loving me and I had not done that before. So it took me a while. It took a very long and I think that 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 whole self-love thing, we talk a lot about it, we see a lot of memes about it, People post stuff on IG talking about self-love, but they don't tell you how hard it is if you've never been loved. It's extremely difficult if if you don't have a family of origin, a community, people in your life that love you and love you well.
0: Yeah. How do you learn about self-love? Like what models do we have? Because like you said, there are a lot of people... And, and we exist so much on social media these days, you know, talking about self-love and the importance of it. I have this sense that a lot of that is empty and their platitudes and part of the whole like, you know, just easy peasy spiritual bypassing, you know, community of just think positive thoughts. Like, what does it really look like? to love yourself or to learn to love yourself? Is there something in your journey that you can point to and say like, this was a cornerstone for me? Well,
1: I stopped believing the words of my abuser. It really clicked. If my abuser said, I I am nothing, my life is not worthless, and, and all of these really harmful things that I was stupid, that I would never be anything. Why in the world would I believe the words of the person who hurt me the most? The person who caused the trauma isn't a reliable uh, source for my self-worth, for my value. They've proven that over the course of my lifetime that they are not a reliable source of information. I can't go to them and say, "Well, because they said this, it must be true." No, because they said this, they are mentally ill and and incapable of loving. So, I don't own any of the things that they said to me or about me. I don't own it. The other thing I did and this is still a process, is literally decolonizing my faith in every way. So I I needed to really dismantle, break down everything that I had learned about God in the church that I grew up in. they said that, and this is me paraphrasing, obviously, that that when we die, that, that God would have a big book and it would write down and, and, and that God, which they said is a man, would write down all of my sins, and I would have to account for every sin. And and they talked a lot about hell and going to hell. And I thought, but living in this world is my hell. And I cannot, if you're telling me that God is loving and that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I cannot imagine going to hell, living in hell right now. And then you mean I got to die and I got to be in another hell where I got to burn and burn some more? And I knew that that was that was some shit. That was like what? Mm-hmm. That sounded like something that a slave master would say. Right. So for for me, I had to de- decolonize my faith. There was a lot of talk growing up of forgiveness, and I grew up in a family where they said, "Well, She's still your mother. That's still your father. That's still so-and-so, right? And you have to forgive. But there was no accountability for the abuser. There never is. That is why abusers live freely and openly because they're never outed. Right. So I really had to focus on not forgiveness, but in naming my abuse. Naming the thing that I went through and saying this thing happened to me This is how it impacted me. It was wrong. It should have never happened. And then I went on a journey of, because sometimes when we're looking for love, we have sex with all the the people. We spend all the money. We eat all the food. We drink all the alcohol. We do all the things trying to numb that pain. I did all of it. So instead of feeling ashamed for the ways in which I tried to protect myself from pain, can I forgive myself and learn to love me for the first time in my life?
0: Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up decolonizing your faith. The decolonizing your faith journey, like that's a huge journey. Like when did that start? What What ignited that for you?
1: To answer your question, I never fully believed the the preachers, the reverends, the pastors, the evangelists. I just never fully believed it. And it starts as a kid watching some really foul stuff happen in the church that I grew up in. Lots of hypocrisy, lots of lots of adultery happening. Uh, lots of things happening in the church. And so I never fully believed it. And then I remember there there was a song that the choir used to sing all the time. And it was the dumbest freaking song. And, and it was called like 99 and a half just won't do. And they would sing that song like there was not another song that the choir could sing. And what they were saying is that you have to give your 100%. And I'm like, B, ain't none of y'all giving 100%. What do you mean? You're all foul up in this place. All of y'all. Nobody's giving 99%. You're not even giving 30%. let us get real. So you're, so you, And I remember that the pastor got up and he was saying, y- y- you know, when, when you're a Christian... You can't half-step. You have to get it 100% correct. You have to leave all your sins behind. You leave it. You leave it at the altar. You leave everything. You turn away from your life of sin forever. What? I'm a whole-ass human, and you're telling me that in accordance to the way that you are... Understanding the word of God, the way that you're translating it for yourself in your head, that I have to be perfect. I have to be Jesus. I have to be like Jesus. Like you really mean that literally? So as a child, I never believed that. And then I just set out on my own path to sin as much as I could, because I'm like, if they're preaching it like that, it must be something I'm missing. That's really good. So let me do all the things. I'm just going to do all the things that I can do wrong. And I did and I had a good time. I'm still having a good time. And then what I noticed is that on one hand, the church would say that this is like, they would use an analogy. This is like a hospital for sick people or for sinners. Really? because if this is a hospital, I keep leaving the the church hospital with infections church acquired infections and whatnot Ooh. yeah I keep people keep leaving and they're dying mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually they are dying So what kind of hospital is this where you go in? And, and upon entering, you have to present a shell of who you really are. You can't be yourself. And you leave feeling worse than when you walked in because somebody has sat in the pulpit and, and, and spoken about your quote unquote sin in such a way that they've devalued and dehumanized you and made you feel like you're not good enough to be loved by God. I should never leave a hospital worse than when I came in. So it took many years, Jen, for me to realize that I literally have to decolonize my faith. I'm not listening to all the things that Paul said about me not speaking and 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 if I have a question, you go to my husband and all these things. I'm not listening to, if Paul even said it, because we don't know the people who really wrote this stuff, but none of them were black and none of them were queer. It, they were not from the BIPOC community, that we know.
0: I mean, well, were they? Because, I mean, wouldn't we say that Middle Eastern Jews are... Definitely brown. Right. And there's a lot of conversation about Jesus being, you know, woolly hair and dark skin. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. But the people who are translating it and creating the Bible.
0: Totally. Totally. The informing of theology, for sure.
1: Yes. I feel like what we've been handed is the slave master's version of the Bible. Absolutely. And I reject it. Amen. As a black woman... I reject all of that and a part of my trauma healing, I had to decolonize my faith and realize that God is on my side every day.
0: Mm.
1: Every single day, God knew because I, because I was created fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm freaking wonderfully made. Right. 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 So, so, so it's no surprise that, To God. Who I am and what I represent. Amen. I am approved. And I don't need to seek approval. From anyone. It's okay. And when I do that. I can't do that without attaching that. To my own inner child healing. And letting young Tasha know. You are loved. You are profoundly loved. You are profoundly um, accepted. And you're good enough. It goes together for me. And
0: so you specialize in the treatment of childhood trauma-related PTSD. I initially read that thinking you work with children specifically, but it sounds like you work with adults where the root is childhood trauma and PTSD.
1: Yes, that's what I work with. I have found that, that that is where the real healing takes place. So I enjoy working with with adults and tracing all of their protective parts. And by protective parts I mean the parts of themselves that feel shame, that feel guilt, the parts that are angry or anxious or feel like they're not good enough, the parts that underperform or the parts that overwork or overeat or however they, they do their jobs to protect and really coming from a psychodynamic perspective, what is the root of that part, that protective part? Tell me, what is that connected to? And so we go on a journey of understanding how they grew up, what were their experiences, and then healing the parts of themselves, their their wounded selves, younger selves.
0: That makes a lot of sense. One of the things too that you talked about here is that you work to eradicate the stigma of mental health. And so I kind of want to talk around that a bit um, because I exist within a space now like where people are so forward about talking about the importance of therapy and mental health and, and really leading by example and sharing, You know, I had an appointment with my therapist today And I feel like I'm in this bubble at this point where therapy is so destigmatized. But when you were talking earlier about the church and how people are leaving the church worse, leaving this quote unquote hospital worse than when they went in. One of the things that I I thought about when you were talking about that is the stigma, particularly within religious communities around mental health care. So what do you find with that? And how are you engaging that to to increase people's awareness of the importance of therapy?
1: Lots of education, Jan. When I think about mental health uh, from my perspective as a Black woman, I can't talk about mental health and the stigma without being reminded of the fact that that mental health was never created for us. And it was always something to be fearful of because we could not trust white people who were helping professionals because benefits would be denied, maybe children taken, maybe receiving some treatment that would land us in a psychiatric ward or psychiatric hospital or being prescribed something that would, in fact, render us insane. In Any number of things that that would just be detrimental to our livelihood. So we could not trust helping professionals. And by the way, the majority of them were white, and that still exists in some spaces. You pair that with the colonized version of Christianity where we are taught to lay all your problems at the feet of Jesus, that he is the great counselor, and you don't need to talk to anyone else, that God will heal you. You pair that with a culture in the black community where we are taught what goes on in this house stays in this house. You pair that with histories and histories of generational trauma within families where no safe space exists, even in the church house, in the schools. There's nowhere that you can turn to. And so there are still a lot of, a lot of people of various races, mostly again in the bipoc community, where it's like you just don't talk, you just you just keep it within the family. And there, there's some what we call in the therapy world, those are legacy burdens. So education is important and, and making sure that and, and how do you do that? Well, the reason that trauma continues to exist generationally is because people keep it a secret. They don't talk about it. And I often ask my clients, what are the things that you and your family are not talking about? Because they're talking about a lot of things. They're talking about, when are you going to get married? When are you going to have a baby? Oh, you know, what's this new job? Where are you going to go to school? What do you want to be when you grow up? But what are the things that you're really not talking about? And so... Oftentimes, the things that need to be discussed, those things are ignored. And if you want to erase stigmas, if you want to stop generational trauma, if you want to stop the pain in your families, you've got to name it. You have to call it out and say, this is a problem. Whether that is within our family, divorce is common most of the children in this family, they don't eat, either they don't know their fathers or there's just a lot of brokenness within the families. And, you, and then you go back generationally, why is that happening? You have to talk about it. Maybe in the family, there is a a, a, um, a, a generational issue with women shaming the, their you know, body shaming, fat shaming, diet pills, Surgeries, all kinds of things to get rid of fat, weight watchers, nutrition system, all the things. And so the way that women talk about their bodies makes anyone who is of a larger body size feel like my body is wrong. Where does that come from? And we know from a historical perspective that comes from the colonizers. We know that, that's proven. You know what I'm trying to say. You've got to break all of that down. <laughs> Dismantle yeah. all of that.
0: Yeah. Dismantle Education. It. Yeah.
1: Dismantle it. Call it out and talk about it. We don't have to hold everything that was given to us. Oh, my family gave me fat shaming. Do I have to? My family gave me addiction. Right. Not literally but this is what they handed to me. This is how we handle our issues. My family gave me the inability to say, I love you, to hug, to kiss, to show physical affection, yeah. to communicate. We've all, if, if it's not in our families, we've seen it. Where families yep. literally don't know how to say, I love you. You mean the yeah. world to me. You're important to me. Where families don't know how to give a hug, a kiss. Oh, well, what is that day back to? And so you have to call it out. And I don't know if I answered the question.
0: I don't even know what the question was, but I'm going to say yes, (laughs) absolutely. And then some, you definitely answered the question, whatever it was. Um, So in talking about the
1: stigma, I remember now. Oh, yeah. That is how you do. That is how you destigmatize mental health. You start at home. What are the Ooh. things that we're not dealing with talking about and getting help for? Yeah. That part.
0: When you decided to get your degree and, and start this journey, did you have support in your
1: family and friend group? My family is my friend group. Yep. My family is my friend group. My husband, my friends, my daughter, it was very natural to them. Well, well, you've always been everybody's therapist. This This is natural. This is a natural transition.
0: Yeah.
1: It just made sense. And being a therapist is the first time where I feel like I am living my purpose every single day.
0: I love that. And I see that. People can't see this because they don't have the video that we have. But when you said that, it's like I can see that in you.
1: Yeah. It's really transformative, Jan, when, when I'm meeting with somebody who's been through a lot. And if you've ever been through something and you were alone in that experience, then you'll know what I'm talking about. Where you just couldn't tell anybody or you, you no one would understand It is powerful to be able to sit beside my clients and to say, you don't have to go through a single thing alone again. I'm right here with you. Before, when that experience happened, you were alone. The loss of the relationship, the loss of the job, the disappointment in your community, the racism, the homophobia, the transphobia, whatever it was, You don't ever have to go through that experience alone again. That is life changing. And so it means a great deal because I know great loneliness. (laughs) I know exactly what that's like to go through all of the trauma by myself, to have to heal, you know, and thinking I'm by myself in this. No, you're not. I'm going to walk through this with you. You get overwhelmed. You have a panic attack. You have some down moments. That's what I'm here for. You bring it right here. You're safe. I'm not going to judge you. Not going to criticize you. Not going to gaslight you. Not going to devalue and dehumanize you the way that others did. You are safe. You are accepted. You are loved right here. This job is not just a job. It's it's who I am at my core. But now I have boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> So that i can be there for people in a different way
0: office hours right
1: (laughs) i do yes and i stick really i'm really strict about keeping those office hours absolutely
0: that's awesome um you mentioned earlier i'm curious do you know the statistics on how many black therapists there are like what is that ratio at this point is it improving at all?
1: I would say yes, it absolutely is improving. Okay. I would say we have more Black black clinicians than we've ever had. I don't know the numbers. Mm-hmm. I wish I did. But we have more than we've ever had, and but we still don't have enough.
0: Learning about the ways in which race impacts racism impacts people in their daily lives. like I can't fathom um, like a black person going to a white therapist to talk about racial um, aggressions, microaggressions, experience, You know, because so many of my friends, I've heard them speak about feeling just gaslit when they leave their therapy sessions and how important it is to have a therapist who can relate. Um, So that's something that I'm really interested in, in terms of just, you know, understanding like how many clinicians are there, you know, is that increasing? I know there are movements to increase the number of clinicians, uh, available. And I just think that's such a powerful and important thing to have. Um, so yeah, I was just kind of curious about that.
1: Yeah. All of the black clinicians that I refer people to were all fully booked. Yeah. No openings (laughs) for that very reason. The demand is high. Yeah. Mental health is more accessible, more affordable more destigmatized, right? More common than it's yeah. ever been in our history, where celebrities were, where people in church, everyone's talking about mental health. Not everyone, but in a lot of spaces.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Social media, thankfully, ha- has made it very popular where people are open to talk about their mental health.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The experience that you, or or the thing that you bring up about people feeling or, or or being gaslit by white therapists. Yes, that still happens. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. It still happens. But I can tell you that the, the two therapists that I've had in my life have both been white. Okay. And both on the first appointment, I said, I don't really trust white people like that. So don't say anything stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't really trust y'all. I don't know.
0: Yeah, right?
1: I've got some issues. And both were well-informed on issues existing in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I like the word ally, but I can't think of a better word in this moment.
0: For sure, yeah. Yeah.
1: So if I were to, if I were, so, so they, they were definitely allies, definitely strong, like Black Lives Matter and, 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 and strong, like LGBTQ plus, um, affirming. Mm -hmm. And I perused their website. I wanted to know everything about them before we met. I'm looking in their office. I'm looking at books on their shelf. Who, who are they? You know, I'm looking at all of that, their decorations. Everything that you can look at, what is the lingo on their website? I'm looking for quotes by black people. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at even the, the, um, what do you call the, the photos, the, the photos on their website. Yeah. Like the if stock. If it's all photos. white people, totally. the stock photos, the stock yeah. photography. I'm yep. looking at that. Yeah. Because if they're all white people, you don't even have me in mind as a client.
0: Nope. Right. Why is
1: everybody on your website white? Mm-hmm. But you're saying that you believe in diversity. Well, show me. Show me. Yeah. Now, maybe not everyone would go through extreme length I don't think it's extreme, but maybe not everyone would go through those lengths to, to kind of prove it. But also... I listened. What are you what are you saying when I re- when I tell you about this experience, this racist experience that I had? How are you responding to me? Mm-hmm. And if it's anything less than you validating loudly that yes, that was racist. That should not have happened. I need to hear you say that that was racist. Mm-hmm. I better not see a Trump flag in your office, right? I I better not see it. <laughs> So I'm paying attention to all of that. And I can say that that people like you in the mental health world exist and are safe spaces for people of color.
0: That's good to hear. So you have a podcast.
1: Yeah. So my podcast is called When We Speak. And Jen, I'm going to be real honest with you. I just wanted a place that was an extension of my private practice. I use podcast therapeutically. So I will often say to my clients, go listen to this episode of the story power podcast, or because this person is talking about an issue that you have experienced or that you're going through, or they've got a book and I think it would be super dope. If you got that person's book, you know, if you feel like it would be a value and I wanted a place to do that because a couple of people said, Tasha, you should, you know, you're going on all these podcasts. You should have your own. And I also wanted a place where I could make my own rules and talk about anything and everything that I wanted to talk about. Right. So yes, I talk a lot about trauma, but I also blend that with the intersections of race, of gender, of sexuality. I really wanted to elevate the voices of women. Anyone that is in the, um, the LGBTQ community. I wanted to, you know, just discuss all the topics, all the things that that in my life I've been told you can't talk about that out loud. Right. I want to talk about it because that is a lie yeah. from the colonizers. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me we can't talk about money, sex, or religion. I want to talk about it. And I want people to come in right? and, and, and really tell their stories, whatever they have experienced, and now how are they using that experience to benefit others, to help others? So that's my podcast. It's called When We Speak. And, and when we, you know, we talked earlier about my work to destigmatize mental health, I want to destigmatize anything that has a stigma, right? Anything, whatever that conversation is. I want to have those conversations on my podcast with people. So we're talking a lot about sex. We're talking about relationships. We're talking about our bodies. Just really anything that is of interest to Tasha, to me. That's what we're doing.
0: I kind of want to touch on trauma a little bit because this is a term that gets used a lot nowadays, Do you feel like it is misrepresented or used in an incorrect fashion? Like what is trauma? What isn't trauma? Do you have any thoughts or feelings on how it is being discussed in society at this point?
1: I have not seen any indication that it's being used incorrectly. That may have a lot to do with just what the way that my social media and news sources are curated, the people that I listen to. So I have not seen it used incorrectly. I think that we do need to talk a lot more about trauma, but we we need we need that discussion not just from a mental health perspective. But in every every sphere, right, uh, of society, we need trauma informed teachers and administrators. Yeah, we need trauma informed people in our churches or spiritual spaces. We we, we need trauma anywhere. <laughs> you know, in the hospitals because they understand trauma from a medical perspective. But when we think about medical trauma that can exist with a a doctor who has terrible bedside manner or a wrong site surgery or an adverse reaction to a medication or something like that or a missed or delayed diagnosis. So we need everyone within the medical community to really understand the impact of trauma and and att- really attaching any conversation about trauma to adverse childhood experiences. ACEs, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, right? Really speaking about that, if I'm coming in with chronic medical conditions and then there's this generational thing yeah of chronic medical conditions in my family, why aren't we having a conversation about trauma? If someone is coming in with chronic pain, fibromyalgia, we know that there's all this research that connects chronic pain, chronic illness to trauma. Why aren't we connecting the dots? What has happened? Tell me who hurt you, what hurt you, what have been your experiences in your lifetime? If someone is coming in with a history of diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and all the things and the foods they're eating and their lifestyle is literally killing them, why aren't we having a conversation about trauma and assessing them for trauma? Because it could be vicarious trauma. It could be generational trauma. Tell me about your family. What are your experiences? So I feel like we're not having enough discussions. And trauma does not belong to the military. They don't own that term. I'm a military vet. I can say that. I'm a military spouse. They don't own PTSD. PTSD existed long before the military kind of yanked that 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 term making people feel like well i must not have i wasn't ever in the military what i went through wasn't that bad well, what would you go through oh well this person died this thing happened grew up in poverty family suffered these 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 experiences House burned down all these different things well sure that's trauma that's why you're having nightmares that's why you're hypervigilant that's why you're having panic attacks and anxiety Lots of children are being diagnosed with ADHD when there is a strong research about the correlation of anxiety, ADHD, PTSD. We're not talking enough about trauma and how we're holding it in our bodies and what it's doing to us.
0: So, then what would it look like? What does it mean to be trauma informed? What does that require?
1: That means on in, in your intake sessions, any assessments that you're doing. New patient comes in, students come in. Let's say if you're a teacher and in every school, whether that's a charter school, a Montessori, uh, any kind of private school, whatever, every school should have trauma-informed staff. Assessing for all the things. So if you have a student, let's just say, for instance, maybe they've relocated several times and are having difficulty acclimating to their new environment. And you notice that they're withdrawn. Maybe their grades have gone down you notice that there's an issue, maybe they're not eating or they don't have food. There's so many different ways. You're you're noticing that they're displaying some behavioral issues. Right. Children aren't going to say, well, I have these issues at home and this is how it's impacting me. Will they act out? Absolutely. Will they withdraw? Absolutely. Absolutely. Will they struggle with attention and focus? Absolutely. So all noticing all of these things and not just saying, that's a bad kid. That's a bad kid, suspend them, put them out, all of these things. So really paying attention and understanding trauma and what you can do about it. And are you a safe place for them? Because school should is one of the most dangerous places. but, But are you a safe place? And let's not even talk about this. I hope this isn't going off on a tangent. But oftentimes, a lot of trauma happens with kids who are on sports teams, extracurricular activities. If you have a coach or an instructor who is physically or verbally abusive, you take your child off of that team. You take them off the cheerleading team, you take them off the football team, you take them off the basketball team. If someone, if you don't know how to talk to my kid without putting them down, making them feel like they're an other, like they're not good enough, you can't if you can't help my kid in that way and be a safe place for my kid, my kid does not need to be on your on your team, on your sports team. Because if you have trauma-informed people, then they're not harming our children. If That makes, I hope I didn't go too much into a tangent there. I feel like I did.
0: I love tangents. And yes, it made a lot of sense and challenged me too, because, you know, there is, I I mean, I'm in this great breaking away of all sorts of things over the last number of years. And, and still there are these moments where something is said and it's like, Oh, Yeah, that's another one of those areas where I think, well, this is just this invisible ethic or standard that we have where we allow coaches to behave that way, because that's just that's just how they do it. And it's sports. And that's how sports are. It's kind of like the boys will be boys. Right. These silly statements and ideas that we have that keep us in this place of passivity where we should be more active. Um, and so, yeah. And
1: I think that that's, that, that's a culture thing. That's a culture thing. Yeah. That it's okay to talk like this. And, and my daughter played sports and I'm very familiar with a coach will talk really bad about this kid. Well, if you're talking bad about this kid, I know you're going to talk bad about mine. Yeah. Mine is, is the one that's scoring the points right now, but the minute that they decline in their performance, now you're going to be talking bad about my kid. That is abusive. That's abusive. And then what happens is then you have children, teenagers, who grow up not feeling good enough. Fearful of taking chances. Fearful of showing up. Because they weren't good enough on this team or that team. And it didn't go their way. Or maybe they were benched all the time. All of these things happen. And then you grow up with adults who are fearful. Fearful that makes any sense. So it matters. Yeah, making sure that we're not in places that are abusive and making sure that we we don't allow our children to be in classrooms or sports teams or daycare centers or anywhere else where they're being abused verbally, emotionally, and all the things. I was working in a school and there was a, a little girl. She was from Honduras. She and her mother moved to the States and they had, when I met her, she had only been in the States a couple of weeks and didn't speak English. And this is not a client of mine or anything, but just someone that I was introduced to, to see if I could provide any valuable feedback on what was going on. Well, she's acting out. She's crying a lot. And for some reason, Her teachers, the principals, the social worker, the guidance counselor in this school couldn't understand that she's afraid. Who knows what she went through to get from Honduras to the United States, to my little small town in North Carolina, in a predominantly white school. She's crying a lot. She's not eating. And when I walked up to her, I sat on the floor and she climbed in my lap and I held her and she just cried. And having to explain to fully grown adults that she left her family of origin or her country of origin. The majority of her family, she does not know the language. She's not familiar with the food and how you all do things. But you're expecting her to sit in class and learn how to write her letters and to take part in reading time and PE and to do a little bit of arithmetic. And nobody stopped to think, is she traumatized? Wow. And maybe for right now, we can just, maybe we can just sit with her. Just somebody sit with her and let her know that she's safe. And what would the world look like if we all had that experience of someone coming into our life and saying, you are safe? It would be a game changer.
0: I wanted to ask you, do you have hope? And if so, what gives you
1: hope? Yeah, I love that question. Oh my God, that's a, I've never been asked that before. I got hope in my damn self, in myself. I have a lot of hope in me. I don't have hope in humanity. I don't have hope in my community, my neighbor, in the world. I have hope in my damn self because I know what I'm here to do. And I know that I'm going to put forth love. I'm going to put forth compassion. I'm going to respect other people. I'm going to have genuine care and concern for other people. I know that I'm a safe person. I know that I'm going to be safety for every single person that meets me. I have hope in myself. And in the work that I do. And my purpose. And I feel like. It's just. It feels like just existing in my body. That. That that is one of the gifts. that, That God has just given me. Like Tasha. You can't trust these MFers out here. Okay. But keep going. Keep doing the work. Keep doing the work. So I. I I have hope in God pushing me forward. My ancestors pushing me forward. My guardian angels. I feel like they're all a little team pushing me forward or a big team. That's how I imagine them. (laughs) Yeah. I, I have an image of my guardian angel just literally covering me every single day and saying, just go, just do the work. That's literally it. I have no hope in a better future. What is that? Racism has lasted too long. Homophobia has lasted too long. The oppression of our brothers and sisters, of black people, of BIPOC people, of brown people have existed for too long for me to be hopeful that that will ever change. So I got hope in my damn self, that's where I'm at.
0: You are the hands and feet doing the work here and now. And you are a person who gives me hope. Having this conversation, you know, and just seeing that fire in you and hearing the passion, um, that is beautiful. Thank you. You wrote a book. I would love for you to tell us about the book that you wrote.
1: Yeah, I, I really felt... Again, guided by God and my ancestors to write my story. So I wrote What Children Remember. It was released last year. It's a memoir about my experience being abused and abandoned by my parents, um, the sexual abuse I experienced, my suicide attempt. And what that was all like and how I got from all of that to here. So really erasing the stigma and the shame as it relates to abuse. I wanted people to know that you can go through really horrific circumstances and still give the world the best of who you are. And so my story... If you want to see somebody that survived, like I'm the epitome of survival. You can still love and you can still have joy and you can still fulfill your purpose. I want people to see that that was done. Like I'm proof of that. And so if they want a copy of that book, you can, they can go to anywhere where eBooks are sold. They can go to Amazon and get the book. If they want a signed copy of my book, they can contact me directly via Instagram and then I'll give them my Venmo or Cash App, and and then I'll send them a signed copy.
0: So then it's in ebook on platforms where ebooks are sold. Can people get um, the paper copy on Amazon as well, or is that just specifically for you?
1: Good question, Jan. They can get the ebook. And the paperback, I would not recommend the hardcover because it's too expensive. <laughs> but Ooh, they can get the hardcover okay. if they want. Uh, but the paperback okay. ebook, it's all available on Amazon. And if they want a That's paperback, awesome. they can get that directly from me.
0: Cool. That would be ideal, right? Connect yeah. with you directly mm-hmm. and get the the book through you specifically. Absolutely. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: So where can people find you and follow you and support your work?
1: Yeah. If people want to find me, I am on Instagram at Tasha Hunter, LCSW. They're going to see my podcast episodes where I'm a guest on a podcast or, or even my own podcast. They'll see uh, just different things that come to mind that I want to speak about, about love, about healing, about trauma, all the things. Um, it's all there on Instagram.
0: Awesome. And tell us the name of your podcast again.
1: And my podcast is called When We Speak, and it's available on all platforms.
0: Awesome. So people can check that out and subscribe and leave ratings and reviews because we really appreciate when you leave ratings and reviews. Hint, hint. We do. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: We need that.
0: Well tasha hunter thank you so much for coming on story power
1: and sharing some of your story with us today thank you so much jan i appreciate it